This is Energy Solutions, a podcast from the Electric Power Supply Association, where we focus on the changing electric grid and ways to bring a reliable, affordable, and cleaner energy future to all Americans. I'm your host, Todd Snitchler, EPSA's president and CEO. In March, EPSA held our second competitive power summit, where we brought together the key players in competitive power generation, markets, and the broader energy industry to discuss the top challenges, issues, and opportunities facing our sector. Our focus this year was reliability and what is needed to deliver reliable power to consumers as the energy transition, or what will really need to be an energy expansion, marches on. This month, we're rolling out audio from the event in a special series. In this episode, we bring you a fireside chat with Thad Hill, President and CEO of Calpine Corp. Calpine owns and operates the nation's largest natural gas power fleet with 25,000 megawatts of generation. It also owns the world's largest geothermal power facility, the Geysers, in California, in addition to new battery storage development. As Thad notes, Calpine is positioning itself to lead the power sector in carbon capture and sequestration. Thad and I discussed lessons from recent extreme weather events, including winter storms Uri and Elliott, and we also talked about ways natural gas generation will be needed even as decarbonization advances and how markets will need to be rethought to compensate the critical infrastructure needed to bring reliable power to consumers. Here's our conversation. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to introduce Thad. For those of you that don't know him, Thad serves as president and CEO of Calpine Corporation, one of the nation's largest independent competitive power companies. He also serves on the board of J.B. Hunt Transportation Services, the MBA advisory board for the Tuck School at Dartmouth, and is, uh, was the past chair of the Greater Houston Partnership Board. Prior to joining Calpine in 2008, Thad was executive vice president of NRG Energy and president of NRG Texas for two years, where he had responsibility for NRG's largest portfolio of power generation assets in the region, including the 44% share that it owns in the South Texas Project nuclear facility. That also has a background with Texas Genco as its executive vice president of strategy and business development, where the role he held prior to joining NRG. And prior to that, he was a partner and managing director at the Boston Consulting Group from 1995 to 2005. Thad holds a BA from Vanderbilt University, magnum cum laude, and a master's in business administration from the Amos Tuck School of Dartmouth College, where he was awarded a Edward Tuck Scholar, all of which is very impressive. So Thad will do all the talking, and I will do all of the listening. And far so. more information than they needed. <laughs> that may, well, I'll, I'll leave that <laughs> to them to decide. So. Thad, I appreciate you taking time to be with us today. Clearly, um, the reliability focus is centered around generation and generation resources. And can you give us a snapshot of Calpine's generation portfolio? Because it's different in some ways than some of our members and similar in others. And certainly, you're, you're the best qualified to answer that. Okay, I'll, I'll do this quickly. Uh, Calpine, um, over the last couple of years, we begin to think about our company in kind of two parts. And this isn't official segmentation, but sure. the way we talk about it which is Reliability Co. and Green Co. And if I'm going to kind of use that to explain our business, in Reliability Co., we have the largest uh, gas-fired power fleet in North America, um, over 25,000 megawatts, Um, most of it um, combined cycles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, we are a top three uh, generator um, in California, in Texas, and in the Mid-Atlantic up through New England. Um, So we play in, you know, New England, 
PJM California and Texas primarily with the scattering. Mm -hmm. Also as a part of the liability code, we have our trading operation where we buy and sell power, gas, fuel oil to the need in winters, emissions credits and the like. The other part of our business we call Greenco. Mm -hmm. um, and it's highlighted by the world's largest geothermal power facility called the Geysers in Northern California, um, uh, which is a fascinating asset where the earth acts as a tea kettle, six million megawatt hours a year of seven by 24 carbon free generation. Uh, we also have a retail business um, where we are, although we have certainly have residential customers, we are believe we believe we've got the the best uh, commercial and industrial consultative type direct uh, retail business out there, um, and then we have a development effort which includes new development at the geysers. It includes battery storage. Uh, we actually have under contract right now, at least for the next ten minutes, the largest battery project in the world, <laughs> um, and uh, out in out west. Um, and then we also are working, which is a little different. Uh, we, we have an aspiration to be uh, to lead the power generation sector in carbon capture and sequestration, and we have active feed studies and development efforts on underway right now at four different points. Which clearly demonstrates both the breadth and depth of the company's experience and the areas that you're focused on, which I think will be really helpful uh, as we try to break down some of these issues. So it's come up in at least two of our discussions, well, probably all of them, really. The winter storm URI situation, uh, what that meant with regard to power generation, gas electric uh, interface, the coordination between the industries, et cetera. As you look back now in the rearview mirror several years and look at the experience, what are some of the lessons learned and, and what does that tell us and what should the nation take away from that experience in Texas about reliable service? Well, I'll start with Erie, but I do want to broaden up, sure. which, is, which is where your question went. Um, uh, look, you know, it's two years in the rearview mirror now. Um, I, you know, I, I think, you know, what happened or what precipitated Erie was an incredible weather event. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, by the way, electrification in a lot of ways, load group. Um, you know, a huge part of the forecast missing the issue had to do with home heating, which was really expanded. Um, so that led to unbelievably high load, um, much higher than expected. Um, the system obviously did not perform. Uh, there were four primary issues in URI, um, and, and by the way, um, these would not have probably kept rolling outages from happening, but I would still argue that event um, could have been, you know, some rolling outages on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, not the week-long debacle it was. Um, but, but I believe the state of Texas, to, get, to give um, the legislature and ERCOT and the PUC full credit, have addressed what I believe were the four major issues that occurred. Um, first off, uh, you know, ERCOT missed the load forecast, and, uh, and, and you know, that has changed, and they are much more now um, in a mode of conservative operations. Um, and what happened initially with the missed load forecast and the shedding of load, um, caused a lot of voltage frequency issues, had a lot of power plants trip offline that never came back. That has been addressed by the new workout leadership, no doubt about it. Secondly, the gas electric coordination issues, um, uh, which was where well, there was a little bit of a doom loop that went on, which is you couldn't get power because you didn't have gas, right. but you couldn't get gas because you didn't have power. And that doom loop, and that, those coordination issues have clearly been addressed, um, uh, you know, although with less regulatory oversight than something maybe uh, should be, the gas system is also, I think, in Texas, been considerably hardened. Mm -hmm. So again, check. The third thing, um, generation units that froze couldn't operate. Uh, there's a rigorous program in place in ERCOT. We've talked about some of that um, here earlier today. Um, that's been taken care of. 
Um, and finally, the utilities couldn't rotate outages. So you had downtown Houston and downtown Austin lit up by Christmas trees, and there was no power in the outlying areas. And that, too, has been addressed. So I think URI has been dealt with, and I think there are real learnings from that for Elliott, for example. But I think it's been dealt with by the state in a very good way, and we're on a great path there. But you did mention reliability. URI was an issue, yeah. of course. We've seen Elliott now. Um, uh, there's concerns about gas supply in the winter in New England, and we've been very fortunate mm -hmm. so far that hasn't um, been an issue. Um, in California in 2020, we actually saw brownouts, mm -hmm. rolling blackouts, um, and but for a tweet from Governor Newsom, I think you could argue we would have seen them again this past September, early in the month. Um, we, in Northwest Europe before the war, so this is going back to uh, December of 2020, um, uh, I'm losing a year, December 21, with, with the intermittence and the loss of some of the infrastructure there, we almost saw it. Uh, NERC, and Jim Rob was here today, I don't know if he said this, but, uh, but Jim, you know, NERC said that if you drop a line from the Great Lakes down to the Gulf Coast, this was done before the summer, that everywhere left of that line was at electric risk. Um, and we're in a very different era now. We've got um, a lot more intermittence. Our traditional definitions of what was reliable, and if you can think about anybody in the old utility business, the old N minus one standard, you gotta be prepared for a single nuclear plant tripping off in your control area. Well, now we've got huge amounts of other correlated risk, um, and so we need to think about reliability from a brand new standpoint, and, um, and I think we're beginning to, but as we know, at every single organized market in the country right now, there's market design questions, so this is in front of us. Right, that's exactly right. Um, as you look at that, and we talk about some of our, it's working. Uh, we talk about some of our challenges. I think the natural gas fleet, as you mentioned, uh, Calpine owns one of the largest ones in the world. Frankly, it is the largest in North America. How does that work towards res responding to reliability, or how do you envision that, both in the current state of where we are, but also as we see this energy transition? Because there are certainly voices that are saying. We're going to skip right past gas and we'll move on to renewables or battery storage or something else. And then you have others that say, you know, we're going to need these resources around, except we're not going to pay them enough. So how do, how do you address some of those concerns and how do we value the importance of that fleet going forward? Well, I, I do think what has become clear over the last year is that some of the policies that have been out there have gotten ahead of the physics. Right? Um, which is, uh, you know, some of the targets out there, while certainly achievable, they still require the, 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 the assets that are there. And there have been a number of, I mean, let's, let's be clear, decarbonization equals electrification. Electrification means load growth, which we're seeing was 5% in Texas last year. It was 2% in California. It was over 1% on the East Coast. It's happening. Um, and with electrification, reliability matters more. And so how do you get there? Um, fortunately, uh, through real-world experience, as well as through some academic work, uh, you know, the Physics are catching up with the policy, um, and people are realizing this. Uh, there have been great pieces of work. The Princeton study on how you decarbonize the United States actually talked about the important role of natural gas in getting there. Um, EFI, or Newman News' think tank, did a study in New England. They did a prior study in California, which showed the same thing. I think maybe the best way to illustrate this, which is actually incredible, I'm going to very quickly um, tell you how California now, and their official state plan, is going to meet their 2045 net carbon neutral, neutrality goal. Right? Um, way oversimplified, but it's the official CARB, California Resource Board plan. Four key components. This is, I want to be clear, this is my simplification of a very complicated plan. So, but four key points. Point number one is electrify everything. And we've seen that. 
um, and the, the ice engines and other things. Point two, add about 9,000 megawatts a year between solar and storage for the next 23 years. 9,000 megawatts a year. Um, now, you know, that, that's a lot. Um, and, and we'll get back, we can talk, come back to permitting and siting and other stuff later, supply chain, but that is the plan. Point three, you gotta keep every single megawatt of gas operating in 2045 that is operating today, really. Now all of that does, and, and, and a lot of that gas won't last that long, but, but that, that is the plan. Um, today, California produces 450 million metric tons a year of greenhouse gases. You do all those first three steps, you get down to about 90 million metric tons. So you're achieving an 80% reduction if you can do all the first three things. Uh, the answer to the final uh, 90 million metric tons is carbon capture and sequestration, some combination of direct air capture and point specific. So, and I make this point, that is the California plan. So it's giving me great comfort that policymakers, again, the physics have called up. California is more advanced than other parts of the country, and I think they're getting more realistic on this. Um, in a lot of ways, and I do think that is beginning to filter through. So I'm, I'm comfortable these assets are gonna be needed. Uh, the final thing I'll say about that is they're gonna have much lower capacity factors. I mean, there's no doubt, we can talk about IRA in a little bit, but there's a lot of zero marginal cost stuff coming. But when you need them, you need all of them. And so there's a whole set of market design principles that are gonna be required, but the world's waking up, and I think the physics are coming through. And that's one, of, that's one of the things we've heard on a number of these in, in our last panel in particular is, you know, who, who's going to pay? There's going to be a different cost. As I like to say, I will not attribute this to that or anyone else, it's not free. There is a cost associated with the grid of the future, and consumers, as David Springy would tell you, are going to have to pay it, and they're sensitive to those costs. So as you look at how we're going to achieve some of these things, and California seems to spread across the country, and you've had the experience of being there, many of us have not, for good or for bad. Um, what are your concerns as you look at the current state of the electric reliability system across the country, being involved in every organized market across the country? Of course, you've got a great view across uh, a number of platforms to see that. And where do you think we're headed when it comes to securing reliability for consumers? So let me back up to the Inflation Reduction Act for a minute. Um, and I'm gonna quote, um, he's now a DOE official, but my old boss um, from years ago, David Crane, when I would say this, the IRA is a Malcolm Gladwellian tipping point, right? These low carbon resources, whether it's you know nuclear or hydrogen or gas or wind, or sorry, wind or solar or storage, are a ton of money. Economics almost don't matter anymore. Um, is there now? As a side note, it has huge implications. I will say the permitting, siting, and supply chain issues are very real. But, but those are gonna be the those are gonna be the issues that are gonna emerge. Everything else will happen. We will see tens of thousands of megawatts of solar intercut, no doubt about it, coming in the next few years. And we'll see this in other markets to different degrees. What that means is a system, um, whether it was the energy only uh, market in Texas or whether it was some of these capacity markets on how capacity got measured, aren't gonna work when you're flooding the system with tens of thousands of megawatts of super subsidized resources that makes sense almost regardless of the market conditions to build economically that have zero marginal cost. And so we've got to think through um, you know, how you're gonna compensate that. And you know, if I had to say one of our biggest advocacy points out there is that we're critical infrastructure. And that you all, you know, the, the critical infrastructure needs to earn a living wage. And I'm fine if you decouple us from 
how much power we produce, um, but we need to keep the capacity around. So, so that is where I think you know all of these markets and all of them. I mean, whether it's PJM um, or Nepal or sorry, New and ISO, New York, MISO, Texas, or California, all right now are struggling with this, and all are in various um, ways of design. Um, you know, I think there's some proposals in PJM. Manu was up here that are very good. I mean, I think accreditation of resources is great. I, but there have been some discussions here around performance. I happen to think you should get hammered if you don't perform, but that you actually, there should be penalties associated with that, but you should actually be able to bid some chance of risk into the capacity price that you want to receive in the market. Um, uh, and you know, you're also going to have to procure figure out what the new reliability standard is, given the correlated risk and other things. So I mean, I think those are the right paths. And each market's gonna do it a little bit differently, but those are the right paths to make it happen, and we're just gonna have to work through it. I, I was gonna ask you if you're optimistic that we'll get there, but I'll save that maybe for uh, the end. I'll ask you how, how, how optimistic you might be. So you mentioned your geothermal resources, and you mentioned uh, that you're looking at expanding. Talk to us a little bit about how those fit into the, the cleaner energy future. I mean, is this something that you see significant attention being paid to? Is it kind of a one-off because you have the expertise and the experience it's easier for you? Or is this something we should expect to see more of? Or kind of diagnose it for Okay, us? there's a lot of effort, R&D effort on geothermal right now. Uh, I think that, that uh, and, and I'm happy to be wrong here, but I think even in the most aggressive views of where geothermal can go, it is a long, long, long way from being a resource. The asset that we operate in California has very unique geology. I mean, without boring everybody, the earth acts like a teapot, and we get up steam that's pure out of the ground that we can spin a turbine with. All right, most of the geothermal that is people are talking about now, and, and I, again, it can happen. There's a lot out there in R&D, long-range batteries, geothermal, small modular nuclear, and inevitably some of this will work. But there is now a closed-loop geothermal, where you put uh, some kind of heat attracting fluid down and then you come up, you heat exchange, and you spin a turbine. That is really expensive. We're doing a couple of pilots. I don't think that geothermal is a, um, is a game changer at all for the sector. Um, what we have, I love, it's great to have. Um, uh, it's kind of like owning a nuclear plant, which is, you know, it's good margins if you own the capital already, but you're probably not gonna build a new one right now. That's kind of where uh, geothermal is. So that, that really leads into the next question is, as you sit here with your existing fleet and you look to the future, how do you envision positioning Calpine to be an effective and active participant in the competitive power generation space for the next 10, 20, pick, pick your time horizon, but how are you thinking about positioning and resources and investment decisions as you look at how you intend to compete going forward? Look, uh, you know, gas plants are going to be needed. Now, there's some places it'll be really hard to build a new gas plant. There are other places where they probably need new gas plants where it won't be hard. We've got a new project that we've announced in Texas. Um, uh, if we can get uh, a market design that makes sense, we'll build a new plant in Texas, for example. Um, and, and that's important because I mentioned reliability going green co. Reliability is going to matter and people are going to have to make that work. That being said, the energy transition is real. We're going to decarbonize. And as I said from the California example, um, we think carbon capture is by far uh, a, a very economical way to do it. Unless you had a bunch of wind and solar and storage, you still need these assets. And, you know, I mean, I don't know what the price is, and you can debate it. $100 a ton if in a nice place to do CCUS, maybe. Um, you know, that's a lot different. I mean, hydrogen is getting paid 
hundreds of dollars a ton. Behind the meter solar is several hundred dollars a ton of carbon costs when you actually work through the through economics. So we think that's actually effective. So we are going to do everything we can to make carbon capture work on gas plants as a tool. You're going to need the assets. Let's have some of them at least that look like you know carbon-free assets like nuclear or geothermal, and we think we can do that. You mentioned. Uh, Sorry, got used to my microphone. I feel like I'm doing a game show up here. I'll start <laughs> asking you questions. So I'll you, take door number three. <laughs> so you mentioned the Freestone facility, um, and that's the project in Texas. Um, is that a result of Texas policy choices and legislation? Is that related to IRA decisions? Is IRA driving some or all, none of your investments? Kind of. What, what is that structure that helps you make those investment decisions? Because you're, you're not a charity. You're trying to make wise investment decisions with dollars that are expecting to earn a rate of return. So what's the structure that's helping you do that? Well, first, I think you need to go to the fundamentals, right? We're talking about a new gas plant investment. There's not a lot of that going on these days. Um, load grew between 5 and 6% in ERCOT last year. I mentioned that already. Um, the good neighbor rule at the EPA. Um, is going to create effectively a cap and trade NOx market um, in a way that hasn't existed at this order of magnitude that is going to be very binding by 26 and extraordinarily binding by 2030. And I believe there are a lot of assets, and we're talking about Texas, that will retire as a direct result of the good neighbor rule. Um, uh, and, um, you know, you got those two, and it's kind of like Manu was talking about PJM. You got a bunch of retirements coming. You don't have a lot of things. So I think there's a fundamental need for new investment. So now you have to decide, of course, is the market going to compensate that in some ways or the other? Because I just mentioned, even with that, there are tens of thousands of megawatts of solar coming. And that's a real thing. Um, and you know, what, has been, you know, what has been put forward um, in Texas by the Public Utility Commission is something called the performance capacity mechanism. And, and um, we were just having a conversation about it out in the hall. And, and I don't need to go into it in detail, except that it provides an extra revenue stream if you actually are available when the market is at its tightest. Um, and, and look, you know, there's politics going on in Texas right now. Um, there's, the legislature is in session. The legislature will do what they're going to do. And I don't know, ultimately, although we're supporting the PCM, where this will end up. But the most important thing um, uh, of coming out is that you end up with a non-discriminatory market. And if you end up with a non-discriminatory market, which means that all assets compete for the same slice of pie, um, and the fundamentals are there, we're willing to risk some capital. Um, and because the playing field, we believe, will be fair. Um, and it was the same in PJM prior to the MOPR and the MSOC. A lot of capital flowed because people believed that the market would be there. You didn't need long-term contracts. I heard the prior comments. You had to have a faith that the rules were constant and we were there. That is harder and harder with all these market redesigns. And I would argue, actually, more broadly, societally, over the last decade, we've moved from a kind of a a principle precedent-based set of politics to a lot more populism. Um, and all of these make investing very difficult. Um, but I'm hoping that the state of Texas um, is onto something here with non-discriminatory set of market rules and enable investment. You've mentioned a handful of the markets that you're active in. And so um, we're going to draw on your experience with the, the four major markets that we want to talk about. So you can take it from either the positive things to take away that are being done well or the negative. The, as I said earlier, you can either be a good example or a cautionary tale. So if you want to walk kind of through California, 
through PJM, through New England, and then ultimately through Texas about where there are some things to emulate. You just mentioned the one, the PCM, seems to be something, if it can be achieved, is maybe something to emulate. But what are some things that you find troubling or concerning in some of those markets that maybe should be avoided? Let's not take it across the country. Let's try to fix it where we can. So, and I'm going to go in a different order than you asked, because I just think it's, these markets are all different. But the theme is the same, which is, you know, how do you compensate capacity that you need for reliability? And while you want to send new investment like in Texas, you know, equally as important in Texas, which is also true, is you can't have a bunch of stuff retired that you need. So you got to have a system, hopefully, that since new, but you also can't chase away stuff that you need. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, and look, I certainly don't, dis- I don't agree with everything that PJM has done. Sure. But I do think the concept of uh, reliability requirement, which is likely higher given winter load and given systemic risks, is a good start. I think accreditation of resources done in an appropriate way. Um, PJM's doing it on a forward basis, they're talking about. Texas is talking about doing it based on how you actually performed, but it's accreditation of resources either by type of asset or by actual performance is good. I think third, and I think Texas has this in a very high dollar per megawatt hour uh, price, but in PJM, I think that, that the penalty structure is probably appropriate, but you got to be able, if you're going to take the risk of the penalties, you've got to be able to recover that in some way. And I think those are components. I don't know what PJM is going to file, but I think as a principal matter, those are a pretty good place to start in PJM. I mean, I'll go to New England. I think there are a couple of additional things in New England that need consideration. New England's a smallish mar- market. Yeah. And what happens when you have huge offshore wind projects that bid in, crush the price, and they don't show up for three years? I mean, we might want to start thinking about one-year forward capacity markets versus a three-year forward capacity market, given that. By the way, during Winter Storm Elliott, guess what happened to all the Canadian hydro flows? They got cut. It's pretty clear that they're not going to let the lights go out in Montreal to keep the lights on in Boston. You know, they also need to think through how they're thinking about the intertie and capacity. So that's kind of a New England thing. You show up in Texas. I, I mentioned this PCM, non-discrimination being the most important, but PCM, which is, hey, let's think about compensating people that are actually there when we need them most. Um, and, uh, and, and you don't have to do all the fancy math ahead of time, but the concept is you only get paid if you perform, but it is a type of accreditation. It's just you got to actually deliver. In California, um, you know, the resource adequacy construct, which is actually a bilateral one-year-at-a-time capacity market, is actually providing price signals right now to retain assets. Um, you know, it, it took, uh, it's one of the challenges of a vertical demand curve, is you don't get price signals until you run out of room, and they're out of room, but, but you do get price signals that happen, and that's actually working. Um, they're working on a new slice of kind of an hourly uh, type capacity construct out there, which I think is probably pretty appropriate. So, I mean, I, I think all of these folks are onto something. Um, I mean, there have been issues. Vertical demand curves lead to no price reaction until too late. You know, that's been fixed in some ways, but in California, we're, we're fine. All these resources, you know, energy-only market in Texas, again, there was a debate. Do you live within only energy-only market? Well, that's pretty tough if you're trying to make an investment decision based on thinking it's going to be hot every 4th August to make an $800 million investment. You know, and I think in Texas, particularly with all these renewables uh, coming in, there's a view that maybe you need a separate revenue stream. So I think all of these markets are, I mean, they're so different, and the cultures are so different, and the reliance on wanting free market versus more government involvement are all different. But I actually, you know, you asked the optimistic point. I'm actually optimistic that 
you know, in, in a weird kind of way, they're all kind of moving in a parallel, subject to their own special politics and um, regional microeconomic differences given the natural resources. And I'm only smiling because I'm channeling my inner Pat Wood who would say, you know, we looked at standard market design a couple decades ago, and of course that didn't go anywhere, but boy, that would certainly shorten our conversation because it would be, <laughs> it's X. So that's not where we are. So I, I see we're, we're approaching the end of our time together. So just a couple quick questions if I can, Thad. What's your view on how we're going to be able to construct a cleaner power grid while securing reliable resources and do it cost effectively? Because as I think every panel has touched on, the last panel in particular really focused on, the consumer has to pay it. And, and I know we're maybe not the voice that people want to hear from because oh, you're the generators, you make money when you sell electrons. Well, that's true. But as Stacy made a point to say on several occasions, thank you, Stacy, for that, this is the way to keep costs down for consumers. So how do you piece all that together, I mean, as you think about it? Yeah, well, you know, there's a little bit of debate on the last panel which you referenced between, you know, letting competition work and not letting competition work. And, you know, if I wanted to, you know, be a little tongue-in-cheek um, and argue against, um, you know, fully integrated regulated utilities, I'd mention three words. Kemper, Vogel, and Sumner. Right, um, this is what happens when you have rate base and people are making decisions where they're not wearing the risk. Um, and so, and by the way, I actually think, you know, on this construct, we're actually aligned more and more with our customers, certainly our large industrial customers, um, because the number one thing the large industrial customer doesn't want is a whole lot of non-bypassable charges, right? Because when you have the more non-bypassable charges you have, the less room there is for innovation and doing things behind the meter and what makes sense. What we should all want is the smallest possible non-bypassable charge, pay the wires fee, their fee, their right, and let you have you know, innovation on the generation side and innovation at the customer site, whether it's behind the meter gen or storage or better energy efficiency. The, the more you actually pad up and let government make decisions and non-bypassable charges increase, then the less room there is for innovation because there's less money to play with. And, and so, you know, I, and, and I think what I'm really happy about is that I believe, you know, as an Epson member, that a lot of our largest customers, you know, we're not standing alone advocating for this now. Right. More and more, the largest companies in America want to procure their own renewables or their own resources. They want to do things behind the meter. Um, and that's creating an alignment, which I'm really excited about. If we leave this to, and I mentioned populism earlier, you know, to all the individual state houses making individual calls, and it's their right. I'm not saying that's not different people have done different things. They're elected, they get to make the rules, but you're gonna end up with a much less efficient situation and you're gonna take control away from consumers. Now, and Stacy, you know, talked about the individual residential consumer and that's coming too, but for now, certainly in the industrial and commercial section, there's huge opportunities here. So anyway, uh, that's a big picture comment, sure. but I would argue pay the wires a fair fee, build them when you need them, um, and then let innovation blossom as much as possible and keep those non-bypassable charges down. And given that I'm staring at our clock right in our face and we are about done, you, that tells me, I was going to ask, you know, Thad, what are you optimistic about? Well, I think I just got it. So whoa, he, whoa, he beat whoa. me to the punch. I'm more optimistic about getting reasonable constructs in these markets <laughs> than I am about this broader market situation. So I want to be clear about that. Fair, fair enough. So I will ask you to join me in thanking Thad for participating in our conversation today. You can find video and more takeaways from Thad's remarks, as well as more information about energy policy and competitive power markets on EPSA's website, 
at epsa.org. Get more fireside chats with EPSA member company leadership, including Nate Hansen, president of LS Power Generation, and Carolyn Comer, president of Shell Energy North America and senior vice president of Shell Energy Americas on other Energy Solutions episodes. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Energy Solutions on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Energy Solutions is brought to you by the Electric Power Supply Association. EPSA represents America's competitive power suppliers, which bring about 150,000 megawatts of power generation resources to customers throughout the United States. Discover the power of competition at www.epsa.org.